Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Mark chapter 7. Today we study verses 14 to 23. Mark chapter 7, beginning at verse 14. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. Mark writes, And he, that is Jesus, called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, evil, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. May God be praised through the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Amen. Father in heaven, we now pray for your particular blessing that your word would speak truth to us, but more than that, that by the ministry of your, hear, of your spirit, we would be given ears to hear, that we would understand and that we would believe and that you would minister to us your grace. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. And probably the most revolutionary statement from Jesus in all of the gospel of Mark concerns the matter of purity and the heart. Jesus says in verse 15, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Now, few would consider that Jesus' most profound comment, even his most challenging statement in the Gospel of Mark. But if we think of revolution in terms of a change and the whole way that we look at things, well, then Jesus' assignment of impurity to the heart rather than to the hands was likely the most radical thing his listeners had ever heard. Now, one reason Jesus' words were revolutionary was a misunderstanding the Jewish people had gotten from the Old Testament purity codes. Uh, Leviticus chapters 12 to 15 contains rules about defilement, and, and uh, the, primarily the point of those was it was a symbolic, symbolic rituals of how to deal with, a, with defilement, things that you weren't to touch or go near certain things. It was a symbol regarding Israel's salvation from death and disorder. They were a people before the holiness of the true and living God. And so these rituals and these rules was a way of communicating those spiritual truths. Now, by the time of Jesus, the legalistic Pharisees, however, had taken ritual cleanliness as a very substance of a person's holiness before God. You add to them the food restrictions that are found in Leviticus chapter 11, and they also were part of that Old Testament code. The food restrictions had the point of separating uh, Israel from the surrounding pagans. Now, a little history is very helpful because during the uh, 3rd century B.C., there was uh, the Hasmonean dynasty and there was the Maccabean revolt against uh, Antiochus IV Epiphanes. It's not in the Bible because it's between the Old and New Testaments. But there was a terrible king and he persecuted the Jewish people. It was a great time of faithfulness. And the book of 1 Maccabees is not biblical, but it's considered historically accurate. And it shows Jewish 
heroes being tortured because they will not eat kosher food. And there's these episodes. Uh, by the way, we look on these people as believers, heroes of the past. And, and they're under the Old Testament and, and they're being tortured with unclean foods, unkosher food, and they will not eat it. And their mothers are cheering them on. And that was a very godly thing because they were obeying God. They were showing covenant faithfulness. But what happened was, as a result of that, in the year, in, this, in a couple of hundred years leading up to Jesus, was an, was a, a, an emphasis on ritual observance, on, on these issues of, of obeying the ritual details of the law. Uh, but the Bible never taught, it never meant that that was a sufficient means for one's relationship to God. But ritual cleanliness had become very important to the people. Now, Moses himself is the one who urged that we must be inwardly set apart to God. Moses said in Deuteronomy 10, verse 16, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart. His point was it's the spiritual reality of these things that matters. And yet the emphasis on outward ritual holiness had become deeply entrenched by Jesus' time. And that prompts him to make this revolutionary claim that holiness instead is a matter of the heart. Now, another reason Jesus' words were revolutionary was that his coming brought a revolution. The coming of Jesus brings the end of the old covenant, the beginning of a new covenant, and there's changes in the way those are administered. Uh, Paul wrote in very helpfully in Galatians 3.24, he pointed out that all these restrictions in the Old Testament, they weren't a reflection of, of, of God's will eternally, but they were provisions uh, it was, they were sort of a babysitter. They were a pedagogue is the word he uses. For Israel, during its redemptive youth, they had to be kept from assimilating into the pagan realms. The Messiah had not yet come. The Spirit had not been poured out. The Holy Seed had not yet come into the world. And so you had all these restrictions designed to keep them from the world. They couldn't, they couldn't share a meal. If you can't share a meal with someone, that's going to keep you from assimilating into their ways. They were not to touch things that were defiled. They were to be kept away. But now that Christ had come, Paul calls him the seed to whom the promise had been made, Galatians 3.19. We're going to find that these restrictions about defilement and foods were going to be removed. You see, a true revolution had come with Jesus. And God's unchanging concern for the heart would now supersede all ritual priorities. Well, this chapter tells of a confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees and scribes from Jerusalem. It began at the beginning of the chapter when Pharisees accused Jesus that his disciples were not washing their hands in the ritually prescribed manner before they ate. And you recall that Jesus responded by accusing them of hypocrisy. Now, the Pharisees had all this malice and filth in their hearts, but they pretended they were clean because they followed certain hand-washing rituals, ones that they themselves had invented. Uh, Jesus assailed them for making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, verse 13. That's the verse before our passage. Now, I think that most of us read that, and we think it's a, a rather, comparatively speaking, it's a rather minor brush-up. But Jesus considers this a matter of central importance. It's very interesting to see the way that Jesus throws down the gauntlet on this issue. And having rebuked the Pharisees, verse 14, our passage begins, Mark tells us that he then called the people to him again. He said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand. Now that's, that's telling us that Jesus considers this to be a massively important issue. 
In fact, we should see Jesus here acting as another Moses when Moses sent forth his law. That is an appropriate parallel. Jesus is the Messiah. He's actually the true and greater prophet. Moses had foretold he is the leader of the second uh, exodus. So the people all needed to hear what Jesus was going to say about the meaning of the Old Testament purity laws. Now, again, I think Jesus' hearers must have expected a minor adjustment, a quibble about the purity codes. Uh, Jesus might accurately have said, you know, you've got it all wrong. That hand washing, the the book of Exodus only requires that for the priest, not for everybody. So you're going beyond the law. He actually had made that point. And they might think he would stick to that. Or or, Jesus, it's a matter of technique. You know, I've got a better way of doing it. I'll show you the proper method for that hand cleansing. That's not what Jesus does. He attacks the underlying principle beneath everything the Pharisees were saying. And he informs them that physical contact with forbidden objects actually has nothing to do with actual defilement. Look at verse 16. There is nothing outside of a person, he says, that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Now, this may have sounded that Jesus had the presumption to overturn whole chapters of God's law, namely Leviticus 11 to 15. And this is one of the reasons why the Pharisees were were outraged by this. As we've already noted, what Jesus was doing, very much here, by the way, like the Sermon on the Mount, he's not changing the law. He's showing the true interpretation of the Old Testament law and its ritual obligations. These taboos had always been symbolic of what truly defiles, namely sin in the heart. And J.C. Ryle summarizes, moral purity does not depend on washing or not washing, touching things or not touching things, eating things or not eating things, as the scribes and the Pharisees had taught. Now, Jesus to his disciples, he argues this point from common sense. Look at verse 19. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? He's taking the food restrictions as a case in point. And Jesus says, look, what we eat leaves no lasting moral impact upon us. Uh, it, it passes through the digestive system, and it, has, it never touches the heart. Now, food itself does not alter our character, either for good or for ill. Now, the same, same thing would be true for things that we touch. Now, Mark, very interesting, Mark in verse 19, he makes a parenthetical comment. Remember, he's writing this gospel to Gentile Christians in Rome, and he points out to them, thus he declared all foods clean. That was, had been a controversy. He writes to his readers, this is what Jesus is doing. Now, while Jesus here revealed the true meaning of the Old Testament law, again, very much like the Sermon on the Mount, it's interesting that he doesn't actually abrogate the ritual obligations of Israel's life. But that abrogation would occur soon. Jesus had come. He must first die on the cross for our sins. He must rise from the grave. He must ascend to the right hand of the Father in heaven. He must pour out the Spirit and Pentecost. And that would bring in the new covenant era. And with the new covenant, there would be an abrogation of these rules that were particular to that pedagogical era, that, that, that juvenile era of the people of God that was the old covenant. Now, the change is very dramatic. We're told of it in Acts chapter 10. 
The apostle Peter is going to be sent to bear the gospel to a, a Gentile, a Roman God-fearing centurion named, named Cornelius. That's going to be hard to do if he can't enter his house, if he can't uh, sit down at a table with him. And so before he does that, the Lord shows Peter a vision. Uh, Acts 10 verses 13 tells us it was a, he sees in a vision a sheet being lowered down containing all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. These are unclean animals. You may not eat them under the old covenant purity law. And yet the Lord commands him, rise Peter, kill and eat. Now apparently Peter has forgotten the episode in Mark 7. Because he's horrified that the Lord would command him to do such a thing. He answers Acts 10.14, By no means, Lord, I have never eaten anything common. I've never eaten anything unclean. And God reproves him with words that I think have a broad application. They should often be on our minds. I often think of them in ministry. God said, what God has made clean, do not call unclean. Oh, what a good rule that is. God says, no, 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 there's a change in the administration of the covenant. It's the new covenant now. Those those restrictions no longer have a purpose. They did briefly. They don't now. I have declared them clean. What I have declared clean, do not call unclean. But it's interesting. God has to show Peter that vision no less than three times. It's so hard to get them to change. And it was essential, of course, to the spread of the gospel that the Old Covenant purity codes be abrogated. This is what allowed Peter to go into Cornelius' house, to to share a meal with Cornelius and his friends, and to preach the gospel to them. It's very interesting in Acts 10.44 that when he does that, and when when the Lord opens Cornelius' heart and Cornelius and his friends believed, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, upon all who heard the word and believed. It was a repetition of the Pentecost event. It wasn't a new Pentecost. It was the old Pentecost being applied to them. What was the Lord doing? He was proving that without becoming Jews, without obeying the purity codes, that these Gentiles are just as much Christians as Peter was. They're just as forgiven. They now have the Holy Spirit. It was proof that they'd been forgiven and made clean. And yet, even after that dramatic event, the first major council of the apostolic church, Acts 15, the Jerusalem council, concerns this issue. It's, it's very ingrained. And, and the question is, we have these Gentile converts, mainly from Paul. And uh, some people said, well, they have to become Jews in order to be Christians. And if Peter shows up to his credit and he tells the story of Cornelius. He ex- explains that God made no distinction between them and us, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Maybe now he'd remembered Mark chapter 7 and the events that Jesus had taught. The Old Testament law with those codes, not the Ten Commandments, that's not provisional, but these rituals, they'd been set aside. And the reason was that God's people were no longer to be kept from the nations. They were no longer to be hemmed in. They were to go out into the nations, the Great Commission, proclaiming Jesus Christ, baptizing people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit of all nations. The point of the law had always been about the heart. And now with the coming of Christ, that the, 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 the freedom of the heart was going to lead the church in its evangelistic work. Now, because we need to realize not only, though, it's not only that things outside don't defile us, but we also, Jesus emphasizes, that's one point we had to make. But the other one is what does defile us are things that were within the heart. 
And that's why Jesus continues with this emphasis. Look at verse 20. He says, well, it's not things outside that make us unclean. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. There's still a defilement problem. There's still an unclean problem. But the truth is, verse 15, the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And so here Jesus locates the matter of purity, of cleanliness, of of justification before God in the heart. Now, most people today do think of the heart in terms of the seat of the emotions in our culture. Uh, the heart's about love and emotions and feelings. If you get a text with a little red heart I, and you're married, I hope it was from your wife or your daughter at least. It means I love you. And so we think of the heart in terms of, 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 of emotions. But in the Bible, there's a much more comprehensive use of the word heart. It's very helpful when you read in the Bible the heart. It's not speaking in, in the kind of the lovey-dovey way that we do. But rather, it's a reference to the entirety of the inner person and of our life. Uh, when the Bible speaks of the heart, I think, I think a good way to put it is this way. It's directing us to the affections, the desires, and especially to the will, to the, pers- the personality and to the will. William Lane writes that the heart in the Bible is the center of human personality, which determines a man's entire action or inaction. Now, Jesus, go back to verse 6 and and 7. Jesus uses it this way. He quotes Isaiah 29. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Uh, R.T. France notes that the heart is what makes people what they really are. It is with the heart that a person relates to God. This is why in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, now, given this scriptural idea, then, of the heart as the seat of personality and will, Jesus makes the vital point that purity or impurity is essentially a matter of the heart. And that's in line with the Old Testament, Psalm 24, verse 3. It asks, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? It answers, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. So the the hands matter, the actions matter, but they're a reflection of the purity or impurity of the heart. Now, given Jesus' teaching, the Pharisees then should have concerned themselves not so much with the ritual purity of their hands, but with the contents of their hearts. In fact, in Matthew's version, we read that they were totally outraged by what Jesus was saying. And the disciples go to Jesus and say, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard your saying? And Jesus might have answered, he was perfectly well aware that they were offended. Jesus had assaulted the citadel of their self-righteousness with the sword of biblical truth. Jason Meyer comments, the Pharisees thought the disciples' hands were defiled, but Jesus gave them an x-ray that showed them that they were hypocrites with defiled hearts. And in this way, Jesus' teaching on the heart, it hardened them. He was assaulting their self-righteousness. That was their, their source of pride, their, their false basis of salvation, and they hated him all the more. Now, I don't think many people today, however, present themselves as righteous by means of food restrictions and hand washings. Instead, what they do is they perform ceremonial good works. And they're good things. Maybe you volunteer at a charity. Maybe you give money to the poor. Those are good things. 
Uh, it just, it's just like washing hands before a meal. There's nothing wrong with that. It was in itself a good thing. What's the problem? Well, the problem is when people assume and suppose that God accepts them on the basis of such good works. Uh, some people rely on religious commitments like regularly attending church. That's a very good thing. The performance of rituals like baptism and communion, rightly understood, those are blessings from God. But none of them make a person clean or holy before God simply by the outward actions. Some people think that they're devout because when they pray, they get on their knees or they hold their hands a certain way. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, In many other cases, it's by showing emotional enthusiasm during praise singing. None of these things reveal the heart. And according to Jesus, purity or defilement is always a matter of the heart. And so the Pharisees should have been concerned with their hearts rather than the ritual purity of their hands. And the same principle applies to us. Listen to J.C. Rowell. He makes this comment, let it be a settled resolution with us that in all our religion, the state of the heart shall be the main thing. That's a good resolution. We want to conduct ourselves decently and in good order, but we must always remember that the mere external is never a thing of value in itself to God. Purity or impurity, religion, piety are always and ever a matter of the heart. Solomon made the same point in Proverbs 4.23. He says, guard the heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the wellsprings of life. And yet there's a problem when we talk about the heart, namely what is in it. Because when we look at the heart, and we do so honestly through a biblical lens, we find a cauldron of impurity and moral sewage, wickedness and deceit. Jesus points this out in verse 21. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and they defile a person. Charles Spurgeon notes what an indictment this is. He says that that part of human nature that yields such poisonous fruit is not a bough that can be sawed off. It's not a limb that can be cut away. It's the very core and substance of the tree itself. It's man in his heart. That is where the corruption and the impurity lies. Now, Jesus gives a number of items that are representative of the sins that brew in men and women in our hearts. First of them is evil thoughts. That refers to the schemes of mischief that our minds concoct, whether they are petty or pernicious. Don't you find yourself alarmed when the news shows there's been some conspiracy by highly placed people, maybe in the business arena, there's a fraud going on or or a conspiracy among political leaders, and and you're, you're horrified until you realize that your mind is constantly concocting little conspiracies, usually with the small things of our lives, in order to do what we want to do, not do what we don't want to do, to give a a false impression. Our minds are concocting evil thoughts and schemes all the time. That is the problem that we have. There is our impurity, evil thoughts. Spurgeon makes the comment that let's say you were arrested, you were placed in a cell and you were bound in chains so that nothing that you, nothing evil that you want to do, you'd be able to do, you'd be just as guilty as if you did. 
The evil in your mind and in your heart makes you unclean before God. The jailer and the jailed are equally guilty before the God who reads the heart. Now next comes sexual immorality, using the Greek word porneia, which refers to all manner of sinful sexual thoughts and desire, including premarital, extramarital, and unnatural sexual behavior. Now we're in a conservative Presbyterian denomination, and you may know that last few years, a couple of years ago, we had a big controversy with regard to people who have homosexual desires but who are celibate, same-sex attracted people. That's the label. And there were a a group of, I think, well-meaning ministers in our denomination who say, you know, the homosexual community thinks we don't like them because we, we talk about the Bible saying it's wrong and sinful. But what we need to say is as long as they don't do it, it's fine. That if you have homosexual desires and you don't act upon it, well, there's nothing wrong with that. You don't need to repent. Now, now that's the problem with that is trying to be nicer than Jesus. You're not nicer than Jesus. You're not more loving than Jesus. You're just being untrue. Because this, this passage shows, it's not, and by the way, it's not just homosexuals. It's everyone is everything. That the desire is actually the seat of the sin. It's not just when you do it. The problem is that you want to do it. The problem is the desire that is corrupt. You and I are unclean in our hearts in every sort of manner. It does us no good to isolate the behavior from the practice. Jesus continues, verses 21 to 22, with theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. We might go through each one of those in detail, but but I think the point, though, is the cumulative impression of so many bad things, such a variety of evil, and they're all found in the heart. Now, J.C. Ryle sees this as an important application, I think he's right, to the raising of children. Ryle says, in all our management, we must never forget that the seeds of all mischief and wickedness are in their hearts. And this means that parents are foolish if they think that what their job is strictly to create positive environments for their children and then to shelter them and isolate them from bad things. Now, of course, we want to do those things. But the problem is that the the evil from which we're trying to shelter them is already there. It's in their hearts. They themselves create the sinful environment that you're trying to protect them from. To be sure, there are wicked things. I'm not saying we don't protect our children. The thing is that they need Jesus. Christian parenting is never less than, and the substance of it is the preaching of the gospel to our little ones. The living out of the gospel, modeling the gospel, teaching them the truth about sin, telling them about a holy God, leading them to the blood of Jesus Christ. There is no Christian parenting that does not have the primary aim of Jesus saving them. And unless that happens, there is no remedy for the sin from which we're seeking to preserve them. And J.C. Rao points out if parents were half as diligent half as diligent in praying for their children's conversions as they are in keeping them from bad company. Today, we might add, from helping them get high SAT scores and being sports heroes and those sorts of things. If we were half as fervent in praying for their conversion, he says, the children would turn out far better. But it's not just children, it's ourselves too. There's an application to ourselves, namely that our problem's in the heart. And therefore, the proverb is right. We must guard the heart. We must keep the heart. We must prayerfully labor in our hearts with the word of God. And Jesus teaches that 
Purity is a matter of the heart, and the New Testament teaching on sanctification has the same focus. It's a matter of the heart. In Colossians 3.5, Paul is teaching about sanctification. Sanctification is the process by which believers in Jesus become more and more holy. And he speaks of we need to fight sin, and we fight it within. It's the mortification of sin at the roots. Listen to Colossians 3.5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly, and here's the key phrase, in you, within you. That's what you want to put to death. He gives examples, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Paul doesn't say, organize your life to make sure that you don't commit certain sins. He goes, no, no, you have to attack it at the root. The issue is always the heart. Your sanctification is a matter of the heart. And so we need to be honest with God in a way that we aren't and maybe can't afford to be fully with one another. We hide things from other people or we govern ourselves. It's a good thing to be self-controlled, to behave well at church. Please do behave well at church. But God sees the heart. We need to be honest with him about our inward corruptions, our, our sinful tendencies, our wicked thoughts and desires. And then we need to prayerfully wield the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, with prayer. Sanctification calls for rooting out pride, self-centeredness, lust, malice, many other evil desires. And at the same time and by the same means, by cultivating the grace of God, that we would be made new inwardly. We should know the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, 22 and 23. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. In fact, one of the ways that we attack sin in the heart is by pursuing grace in the heart. We get rid of darkness by turning on the light. Don't forget to turn on the light. Turn to God in Jesus Christ. Look to the cross. Believe the Bible's teaching that God loves you. Trust the power of the Holy Spirit and actively cultivate those graces which at the same time must be the rooting out of vice. You see, when we realize the evil that is in our hearts and the harm it does to us, the harm that we do to others because of it, that the difficulty it poses to the church and the gospel witness in the world, well, we will abandon all pretense of hypocrisy. Oh, we, would, we are tempted to the pretense of hypocrisy. We need to say, no, Lord, deal with my heart. Change my heart. We need to appeal to God to cleanse us inwardly. Well, Jesus' teaching on what lies in the heart, the impurity in the heart, draws us to consider some vitally important biblical doctrines that are necessarily true because of what Jesus teaches here and that help us to understand him. And I want to point out three of them. The first has to do with the biblical definition of what is our true and dreadful problem. It's important that we identify the problem correctly. correctly. And then secondly, we want to see what is, the God's, what is God's gospel's provision? What is his solution to the problem of sin biblically defined. And then thirdly, what is the Holy Spirit's promised provision? Our true and dreadful problem, God's gracious gospel solution, and the Holy Spirit's promised provision. Well, starting with the problem, Jeremiah anticipated Jesus' teaching when he said in Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? 
Now, his point is he, he's bewildered by the state of his heart and your heart. He, he's, he's lamenting the deplorable moral and spiritual condition of every human heart. And that is, by the way, why Paul categorically stated in Romans 3, 9, no one is righteous, no, not one. And then he starts talking about what's in the heart. Now, if you ever wondered why is that the case, why is it that what we said there is true of every single person? Why is it that when every single person listens to what Jesus says about the heart, either you're mad at him, or if you have eyes to see, and I think we all experience this, we're embarrassed. We're abashed when Jesus starts talking about the heart because the truth is those things are in my heart. Now, why is that true of every single person you've ever known? And the Bible answers with reference to the doctrine of the historical fall of Adam. What Jesus says here, why is it that the human heart, every human heart, is defiled with impurities? The Bible's answer is a historical fall at the beginning of history. Though Adam was created righteous, he succumbed to sin, and he fell into unrighteousness by violating God's command. You can read that in Genesis 3, 1-6. And the result of Adam's fall is another doctrine, a related doctrine. Theologians call it original sin. Original sin is not the sin itself that originated it. It's the original condition of all of Adam's offspring because of his original fall, namely that each of us is born already guilty and in particular already corrupted and defiled in our hearts. Spurgeon puts it this way, it remains a marvelous riddle how man is what he is. Isn't that true? Every generation says, how do you account for the world being the way it is? How do we understand why mankind is the way it is? And Spurgeon says, oh, it's a marvelous riddle. How it is that man is how he is until you turn to this book. And when you read the story of the fall, the riddle is unriddled. It's the only adequate and comprehensive explanation for the universal problem of sin in the heart. Adam stood as our representative, and when he fell, we fell with him into guilt and corruption. Spurgeon says, he being a rebel, we are born rebels. He being a traitor, we are born traitors too. And so Jesus' teaching about the heart requires us to understand the fall and its implications, original sin, that we're all born with a cauldron of evil within us. We also should know the word total depravity. And that points out not only am I comprehensively sinful, anywhere you point to me, you'll see the effects of sin, particularly in the heart, in the inner being, in the mind, in the will, in the affections. But more than that, I lack the power to do anything about it. My friends, we sin because we are sinners. That's the question. Am I, do I, am I a sinner because I sin? Yes, only after you realize that the reason you sinned is that you are a sinner. And Jesus says in John eight thirty four, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. There is nothing we can do about our hopelessly evil natures. We sin because we want to sin. Isn't that a terrible thing you're wrestling with? that you find your heart maneuvering against you? You say, I, I really, I'm tired of committing this sin. I'm, I, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm not going to do it. And, and your own heart is giving you incentives and, and waiting till you're tired and weak and outflanking you. Well, the problem is the heart. Jonathan Edwards says, you may do as you please, but you are not able to please as you please. You have a desire for sin problem, and that is your total depravity. 
Well, we return to Jesus' catalog of the sin that lies in every human heart. It proves the fall. It proves man's total depravity, even as it shames us for what is found in us. And we realize the second great truth that's associated with this, the gospel solution that God provides in Jesus Christ. Do do we see how ridiculous it is having hearts like this? That we would consider ourselves clean before God because we've washed our hands? We've performed an occasional good deed and we're going to present ourselves as clean before God with hearts like ours. No, 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 no. If if we identify the problem correctly, total depravity, a, a, a sewer of a heart before God, the solution is one that only he can provide. And the solution is provided in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, here's the question. Here's the only real mystery here. What's Jesus doing among these people? What he says is absolutely true. It's easy to prove what he said. The heart is filled with all of these things, but, but his heart is different. Why? Because he's the eternal son of God. He's incarnate of the Virgin Mary. He came into the world, true man. He, he, he's not, he does not partake of the corruption through Adam. And so why is Jesus, the Pharisees asked that if you were really a holy person, you wouldn't be hanging out with these people. Well, the answer was given by the angel when he told Joseph. In fact, this will be my text for tonight. He told Joseph what name to give the virgin-born child. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will deliver his people from their sins. Here's the gracious gospel solution. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but should have everlasting life. God sent Jesus Christ to be the solution. He set him to live the perfect life you and I should have lived, but we never could do it. And then he came to die that sin-atoning death by which you and I alone are forgiven. Uh, Jesus took up the cross. Peter says he suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And so here's the good news. If you face the truth about your heart, you look to Jesus and you find a solution, the one solution that is adequate to your need. Uh, Most of us love the great cross passages of the New Testament. One of my favorites, 1 John 1, 7, he says, if we walk in the light, and, and in part he means stop pretending you're not a guilty sinner. Stop pretending that you're clean. You're guilty before God. Believe in Jesus Christ. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, God's son, does what? Cleanses us from all of our sin. And then 1 John 1, 9 gives the gospel call. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. My friends, it stands to reason if each of us stands guilty and defiled before a holy God, guilty not only with our hands but also in our hearts, we cannot save ourselves. We need a Savior And God proclaims that Savior in his Son. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation to be received through faith. There's the gospel solution provided by God to you. Romans 3, 23 to 25. The Savior Jesus Christ through his blood, to be received through faith. Well, the greatest message ever heard proclaims Jesus, God's Son, dying for the forgiveness of those who believe, 
And yet, even that leaves us with a very big problem. Even having been forgiven, what am I supposed to do with that heart that Jesus described? Am I supposed to live with a heart like that? Am I supposed to serve God with those things uncontrolled in my heart, with me not being able to do anything about them? How wonderful it is that I confess my sin and I'm forgiven by trusting in Jesus. But do I have to keep living with a heart that propels my hand and my mouth and my eyes, everything about me, constantly being driven into sin? Well, here's the further good news. It's the third thing I mentioned. The Holy Spirit's gracious provision of a new heart. Oh, what good news it is. The new heart that is God's gift to you through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Even in the Old Testament, God foretold, I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27. You see, it's the doctrine of the new birth and the implications of the indwelling Holy Spirit that causes the believer who is honest before God, who admits the sin and says, you know what, I know not. it's not only that I should not continue to be that way, I need not be that way. And that's when we take up the trowel of God's word and we begin digging it into our heart. We begin getting on our knees and we start praying and we start seeking in practical ways, but particularly supernatural ways, a life that is devoted to God because we have been born again. We have new hearts. Jesus told the Pharisee Nicodemus, for all of his virtue, you must be born again. But listen to what Peter says to you who believe in Jesus. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. What a provision that is. You have been born again if you are in Christ. We see it's knowing then and experiencing the new birth by God's Spirit that we apply ourselves so optimistically even, earnestly, to rooting out sinful desires and cultivating godly grace in our heart. Uh, Far from remaining despondent about our hearts, we look in faith to Jesus, we trust God's Word, we prayerfully offer our hearts to be more and more renewed by God's grace. Let me conclude by going back to Matthew's version where the Pharisees heard all this and they were offended. They were furious about the truth that Jesus had revealed about their hearts. Let me suggest that our response should be entirely different. We are saved from the guilt of our sins by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Instead of being furious, surely we should be grateful. We should be grateful. And how do we show our gratitude to God? for sending Jesus to die for our forgiveness and for the Holy Spirit to renew us inwardly. How do we show that gratitude? Well, let me suggest that we do it with our hearts. We allow what God has put into us and is working in us to come out. Let it be the grace of God working in you to come out of you in your speech, in your habits, in your actions. Oh, I know you've still got a sin issue, but there's a conquest taking place within you, the conquest of God's grace. And then offer your heart, like John Calvin, offer your heart to God. I love Calvin's personal motto. I commend it to you. He said, I offer my heart to thee, O Lord, promptly and sincerely. May each of us in Christ do the same. 
Father, we thank you for Jesus' revolutionary words, uh, telling us the truth about our hearts. And Father, we thank you that he died for the forgiveness of our sin, and now you, by your Spirit, are working that grace in our hearts. Uh, Cause us then, Lord, to forsake all the hypocritical, false external righteousness to which we are prone. Cause us to, by your grace, render our hearts to you. And we pray, Father, would you make us more and more holy. Would you bring praise to your grace from out of our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.